Vivo qualitative data analysis software empowers researchers around the world to discover rich insights within their qualitative data. This podcast gives you unique insights into the methods, the processes, and the passions of researchers. Welcome to the InVivo podcast, Between the Data. Uh, welcome to the InVivo podcast, Between the Data. I'm Stacey Penna, the InVivo Community Director. Today's podcast is with Dr. Liesl Neidegger, Assistant Professor and the Director of the Gender Health Equity Lab in the Department of Kinesiology and Health Education at the University of Texas at Austin. This episode will focus on Liesl's current research to develop theory-based interventions to prevent HIV and STIs in regards to violence among women of color. So welcome, Liesl. Thank you for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me. One thing I wanted to ask is just how did you get involved with uh, this research and your research interests? Yeah, it was. it's actually... Uh... An interesting story. So right out of high school, I was a lifeguard and camp counselor for one of Paul Newman's camps for ill and uh, children with elder illnesses and uh, different abilities and disabilities. And it was an amazing experience about maybe a close to one third of the adolescent girls I worked with were HIV positive. All of them contracted it from their mothers. And it was I really built a great rapport with them. I learned a lot about their lives. There was a lot of trauma. And so that always kind of stuck with me, uh, you know, just this interest in HIV and in and, and trauma. So I actually went to college to be a middle school math teacher <laughs> um, and then ended up with a psych, a psych degree. I was very interested in organizational and behavioral uh, psychology. So I started my master's in that, but I was still really focused on health. And so my advisor at the time told me about this new program that came to our grad school for us. It was the School of Community and Global Health. And I was very interested. So I looked at the faculty, literally went down the list and found two who did work with HIV because that still just was resonated with me. And so they interviewed me. They hired me as a data collector. I ended up developing an evidence-based HIV curriculum and and worked with them, uh, ended up transferring into the MPH program, got my PhD, and worked with people convicted of drug charges, focusing on HIV and hepatitis B and C prevention. But what I noticed uh, while working in that was that majority were men, and some of the men were also in court-mandated domestic violence classes. And so it kind of got me thinking, and with my best friend and other you know fellow grad student, we started talking of this kind of merger between trauma and violence and HIV risk. And so that kind of helped shift things where I wanted to focus on women, where, you know, kind of negotiation isn't always an option um, based on your circumstances. So then I decided uh, to learn how to do qualitative research. And my postdoc focused on uh, learning qualitative methods from Dr. Julia Dixon Gomez, and she's wonderful and was a great mentor, is a great mentor. And um, and then that's kind of where it took off from focusing on women um, with who experienced trauma. Wow, that's great. I, I, I like hearing stories about how people, you know, get involved with their, their research. That was, that was a good one. And can you describe your most recent research project? Because I know you have a few going. So I thought I'd let you pick which one <laughs> you want to talk about. Yeah, I have. Uh, we're actually launching uh, two this week that one has to do with 
looking at sexual assault and um, mandated reporting on campus. So I won't go into that one. And the other one had to look at PrEP barriers to access among transgender men and women. So those are being launched now. Uh, but the other one, this has been kind of the trajectory of my research. And so what, where we're going now is kind of the next steps. And we are developing different programs to increase HIV testing and linkage to care, um, as well as providing support groups and um, support for economic success, since poverty tends to be a, a huge problem. And, you know, we, what we often see is that these structural issues get in the way of actually, you know, kind of self-care. And I'm sure, you know, you probably know or have experienced certain things. And, um, you know, if you can't put food on the table for your children, your sexual health is going to be pretty low on your priority list. Mm -hmm. And so uh, one grant that we, um, so I developed a couple of programs and the study we're doing right now is running those by um, our priority population. Everything from the structure of it, how many sessions, what should the name of the program be, recruitment flyers, everything. So we're really trying to have it be, you know, from the community. And then I just submitted one grant that has to do with an online intervention to promote at-home HIV testing, then linkage to care and linkage to PrEP. And then the other one that we're working on with the organization Cardia is looking at doing support groups that will mitigate HIV and IPV risk from more of a strengths-based and empowerment approach, and then also provide kind of training and support for more of the soft skills for jobs and, um, you know, everything from code switching to interviewing and, you know, a bunch of different things. So we're in the process of finalizing that and we'll submit that grant um, in May. Oh, you're not busy at all. <laughs> no, not at all. <laughs> oh, how, how many grants do you apply for per year? Typically, probably, let's see, I have, I submitted three last year, mm-hmm. um, towards the end of the year, um, maybe four, actually, now that I think about it, um, there was two, so about anywhere between three and five, I would say. Okay. Um, funding is difficult to get, you know, so you have to yeah. <laughs> do it as many times. So, um, yeah, so we have a lot of different projects going on right now. Like one of the other grants under review is a web-based and online intervention to prevent suicide and intimate partner violence among uh, BIPOC women, women of color. Mm-hmm. Great. Thank so. you. And so talking a little bit about your methods, um, what is your, uh, your your typical design framework that you use? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, so we basically, I look at it from a very I teach how to do program planning. And so from needs assessment all the way through intervention development. And so how I take, I generally conduct formative research first and that's where the qualitative comes in. And so from the work that I've done, I've had them guided mostly by syndemic theory or theory of gender and power. And that helps to develop the research questions of what to pursue. Then we do intervention development and, you know, pilot test it and then actually do like an efficacy trial. So that's kind of where we are right now is in between the pilot and uh, intervention development or finalization and, and efficacy testing. When it comes to not just those theories that I mentioned, but I also use the situated motivation, behavior, uh, information, motivation, behavioral skills model, which was originally designed for HIV uh, related behaviors and, and skill building. And so we'll use that, but often through like the situated part, 
is kind of the broader lens. And so we'll often use either critical race theory or intersectionality um, and kind of look through the research through that lens. Mm -hmm. Okay, thank you. And so based on the articles you've published, uh, you conduct both, like you said, qualitative and quantitative studies. So how do you decide which method to use or do you generally use both like you, you sort of just described? I generally use both, but I usually start out with the qualitative uh, so I know what questions to even ask. Uh, And then we'll move into the more quantitative uh, and intervention-based. So, for example, the sexual assault uh, questionnaire that I was just talking about, we first conducted focus groups with the students. And, you know, we did have them do some quantitative questionnaires, but we did focus groups and then actually had them go through the final questionnaire that we'll be launching soon to get feedback on it. What can we cut? What doesn't make sense? And so I really try to use the mixed methods approach where we'll start with the qualitative and have that lead to the the quantitative. Mm -hmm. Yep. Great. And how do you recruit your participants? (laughs) It's a great question. (laughs) Uh, I think we'll actually end up writing a paper about this because uh, recruitment in Milwaukee was extremely easy. Uh, We were very lucky to have uh, one of the gatekeepers working at our center. And so she is also a minister at a church and helps vouch for me and kind of let me uh, introduce me to the community and a bunch of uh, women. And there, the women enjoyed participating in the interviews uh, so much that they just referred their friends to it. They're like, you get to talk to a lady for like an hour and then you get paid for it. (laughs) (laughs) You know, so, so many of them were like, this is so therapeutic. And, you know, some actually ended up changing behaviors just by talking about it out loud. You know, it wasn't an intervention by any means, but sometimes that happens. And so there it was very easy then in Texas. And we also put flyers out at like Planned Parenthoods and different clinics and, you know, that kind of thing. But it was mostly recruited from the church or through word of mouth. Mm -hmm. And participants were not uh, compensated for referrals. But then we got to Texas and tried to do something similar. And I did partner with several community organizations, um, one the main one being like a domestic violence shelter, another one supportive housing. So there's some great orgs that we've worked with here. Got a lot of them. Oddly enough, the women really enjoyed it, but they didn't refer that many people. So we ended up doing uh, compensating for referrals up to three participants. So, you know, nothing excessive. That worked a little bit, but I think for these next studies, we're actually going to be hiring a social media um, marketing firm to help us create social media ads for Facebook and Instagram and, and have them tailored to our priority population and mm-hmm. uh, hopefully do that. So kind of a mixture, um, but this this was actually a funny story. We trying to, well, we also put up flyers just around the city, like at bus stops and, you know, all over the place. Um, but we went into this one community uh, organization who was very amenable to working with us. And she looks at the flyer and, and it's, It says our eligibility criteria, which is unprotected sex in the past year, which is one of them. She goes, but it says sex on here. And I'm like, yeah, that the studies about HIV and STI. Oh, we don't talk about sex in Texas. And I was like, well, that's probably part of the problem here. (laughs) So um, it's been much more difficult to recruit. Um, We also expanded um, in 
Milwaukee, we were working with um, only Black African-American women. And here we expanded it to work with Latinx as well. And there was definitely a mistrust uh, there of being a part of UT, being a research study. One of our Spanish-speaking participants actually told us that her friends told her not to participate, to not trust us. Oh, wow. So there's definitely that kind of institutional mistrust um, that we didn't really see in Milwaukee. Mm -hmm. Interesting. How many, I'm just curious, because you have to do all that recruiting, how, how many participants are you looking for typically? Generally between like 12 to 20 until we reach saturation. Mm-hmm. Um, we ended up with 18 for the study in Texas. Um, in Milwaukee, actually, I had to turn away women. We recruited over 30, but as far as eligible, we had about 30 women. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, so we, we had a lot. Um, um, but yeah, it usually the goal is around somewhere around 15. Yeah. And then, so then, then you create the survey, right? And then how, how many people do you try to ha- take the survey? So for like the sexual assault one, we're probably, we have funding to get reach about almost 2000 students. And then I'm hoping to get a larger grant because it's, this is a, a statewide mm-hmm. policy. And, uh, and so I would like to see what, you know, outside of UT as well, what students thoughts are. But for like the ones that we're developing now, the programs, the surveys aren't really the crux of it. It's more of the intervention and we'll just do small pilots with maybe mm-hmm. 60 women or mm-hmm. something. See how it goes. And then again, look for a larger grant for, you know, several hundred. Okay, great. Thank you. What is important to consider when working with vulnerable and underserved populations? Understanding your biases and knowing how you could be coming across to the community. And so rather than just walking in there and being like, hey, you don't know me, but let me tell you how you're going to prevent HIV, that doesn't go over very well. And so uh, getting in, um, you know, finding people, whether it's an organization or people that can help out for you, it was a research assistant in Milwaukee, that really helps to get just buy-in and just asking what people want, you know? So that's why, you know, when I... One of the questions I asked one woman or all of the women, but it said, what would make it easier for you to get on prep? And she said, not being black because I'm black. I can't get a job. I can't get insurance and I have no money, so I can't get prep. So she was even seeing the bigger structural issues. And so that's why we're including that component in this next intervention, because it's, it's so important. Um, but had we not asked that question, we might not be going down that down that path. So it's really important to just ask people just what they want and um, and really cater to them. We're constantly getting feedback from people in the community and that helps build trust among everybody as well. That's been really, uh, that's been really helpful. Um, and actually <laughs> in Milwaukee, one of the participants, most of them were from the same general area. And I uh, knocked on the door to interview one woman. I think it was her second interview and her son, uh, adult son answers the door. And I was like, hi, I'm here to see your mom. And, and he's like, what you, the sex lady? And, uh, <laughs> I was like, yeah, um, I guess we're interviewing about HIV and that like stuck. And so I was known as the sex lady with pink hair. In the area. Uh, Dr. Liesel. <laughs> <laughs> Exactly. So, um, yeah, so it's just important to just really try to connect with, uh, with your participants and, you know, regardless who they, who they are. We'll take a short break from the podcast. 
You can learn more about Dr. Liesel Neidegger's research by visiting the University of Texas at Austin's Gender and Health Equity Labs website at sites.edb.utexas.edu slash ghel. So what are the different analysis methods you use? Um, In one article, you mentioned thematic analysis, but uh, do you use others? Yeah, so we'll we'll generally uh, look at at those for the qualitative portions um, because of the research questions that we have. We sometimes write up narratives and we're going through and trying to, you know, collect that um, and kind of, but we're still looking at it through more of the thematic lens of what are the consistent themes. And then when we get into more, quantitative, um, usually it's just, you know, plain, simple, either logistic or, you know, multiple regression or something. Um, and then once we get into the, where we'll have multiple times and everything, we'll do more of the time series analyses. What uh, technology do you use to help you analyze your work or just maybe in, in general too, is there a certain technology that, that you're working with? Yeah, so I started with uh, Max QDA uh, was initially because that's what we had a license for at the center, and then we I actually I think it might have been Rose and and Rose and Rose and Rose. I met her at APHA and learned about um, in vivo mm-hmm. and um, and won a free like ninety day trial and really enjoyed it. And so I've been using in vivo for the qualitative portion of it. And we actually were just, Anne was able to help us get like kind of an online license so the students can use it even off campus, which is wonderful. Um, I'm now trying to venture in and use it for lit review type Mm -hmm. stuff. I haven't done that yet, but we're in the process of trying to do some of the coding. I have some students helping with that. And then for quantitative, I at least used to use SAS. Um, it's, I think we don't have a license for it right now, so I might be using SPSS, but mm-hmm. we'll see. <laughs> and, and so how large is your team that helps you analyze or, or you work with? Oh, I have a lab of over 30 students. Mm-hmm. About four or five of them are graduate students, and then the rest aren't undergrad. We have an extremely diverse lab, um, not just background or, um, you know, first gen, but just interests. We have students from public health, from pre-med, neuroscience, and uh, advertising, sociology. Um, so we have a really diverse group. And because we have so many projects going on, we have just kind of different smaller groups that will work on, you know, either analyses or coding or, you know, mm-hmm. that kind of stuff. Oh, neat. Wow, that's excellent. Yeah, that's great. It yeah. took a little while to build up to that, but uh, it's running really, really smoothly now. <laughs> they want to work with the sex lady. <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> so uh, how do your findings affect the vulnerable and underserved populations that you research? So the goal is to eventually change policy. I mean, we need better housing policies. We need better strategies to help women or men or whoever, any gender, sexual, sexual identity that are experiencing IPV. And, you know, just saying the shelter is full is not an acceptable response. And, um, and I've unfortunately had participants going back to their abusers because there's literally nowhere for them to go. It's either that or the street. And that, so what I'm hoping is that we're going to see long-term uh, eventual changes. And I'd like to see that that the same thing with the sexual misconduct. Uh, that was a Senate bill that passed and went into effect January 1 of 2020. 
And I'm, we're going to see what the results show, but I'm hoping to maybe make some changes to that. So that's like kind of the big picture. Um, but I also, for participants who sign up to be um, in any of the studies, they have the option of uh, signing to be contacted for future studies. And so we can, so a lot of them have actually seen the evolution of, oh, I was interviewed about this. Oh, and then you developed this program and now we're giving feedback. So I think also part of it is them getting to see the trajectory of what they're doing and that they are actually helping. Like they are the, they are making these changes. It's because of their feedback and their interviews and, and everything. So um, I think that's also creating buy-in some trust but that they can actually make changes and do something mm-hmm. um so i just thought of this uh, thinking when you're working because you've just told some um some situations that would are tough for people right they have to go back to their abuser or they get shut out of, of where they think they're going to sleep that night so how how do you and then your team how do you keep some of that separate right like i I'm, would think sometimes you'd get pulled into that human not drama, but just feeling of, of wanting to help people, right? <laughs> that are struggling. Yeah, no, it, it's very hard. I definitely debrief anytime uh, students are involved with either just reading the transcripts because that can be, you know, tra- traumatizing, uh, especially if you're sitting in on an interview. Um, so we do a lot of debriefing and checking in. And I would do that with my mentors as well. Um, but we also provide resources and that's been helpful. Um, we're, mm. you know, if somebody has an issue, we have this, it's actually like a living document, especially with COVID because things are changing so frequently and services may or may not be available. And so we have that, that we're constantly giving out. Um, and when we updated it because of COVID, we actually sent it to former participants who agreed to be contacted again. Um, but that I'm actually a part of a listserv that helps, um, it's for, basically providers to help people who are experiencing uh, homelessness or housing instability. And for any of the extreme situations, I'll actually um, not extreme, but you know, I'm like, she can't get into a shelter. I need help. Mm. And, um, and I will contact them. And I was able to get, you know, some women into shelters just by networking. Yeah. Oh, that's great. And also obviously that helps build trust too in the community, I'm sure too, because you're, being active with them, you know, so. Right, right. And a, and a lot of them don't even know some of these services exist, mm-hmm. you know, so. Wow. Well, so yeah, that, that, that's really, that's really great that education part. Yeah. Uh, and um, so in one of the, this caught my eye. Um, I, I saw that you had a recently published article with Sage Publishing uh International Social Work Journal, and the article was called Examining COVID-19 and HIV, the Impact of Intersectional Stigma on Short and Long-Term Health Outcomes Among African Americans. So I was wondering, um, can you sort of describe that intersectional stigma between these two viruses on on the health of African Americans? Yeah, exactly. Thank you. Uh, Thanks for bringing that up. I probably one of my most favorite recent publications, actually. Um, uh, So Dr. Hill and I were talking about this and uh, what we're recognizing is that as COVID started getting worse, one, it was disproportionately affecting communities of color. um, But then again, the the virus itself is also stigmatized because it's like, well, what did you do to get that? Um, And, and obviously 
you know, with HIV as well, it's, it's not always that, you know, do, do people make some dumb decisions and yes, of course, but that's not the end of the story. And that does, that's not true across the board. And so we, we just started talking and realizing that, you know, we have this stigma, this group that deals with discrimination and stigma. And then we have these viruses that are stigmatized and then together we are seeing them disproportionately affect and uh, we're seeing higher matern- uh, mortality and, um, uh, you know, it, and deaths and just in getting hurt or, you know, illnesses among these populations. And so there really were just kind of parallels between the two. And we thought that was really um, interesting, but also COVID is shedding such light on how horrible our health care system is. And we're hoping that there will also be a trickle down effect where if we can fix this because of COVID, then hopefully that's going to help with, you know, HIV and other STIs. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, that would be one positive out of <laughs> all this. <laughs> so, uh, and um, also seeing where else you published, I found it interesting that you've written articles for The Hill, a political mm-hmm. news website, um, and some of the topics were uh, federal uh, vacancies and faulty beliefs that acceler- uh, exasperate HIV prevention efforts, and then also how rent increases can empower domestic abusers. So I was wondering, um, you know, why you decide uh, to publish in those types of um, uh, publications also? So it was actually a part of a the op-ed uh, fellowship program. And so it was actually a one-year uh, fellowship where you learn how to write op-eds but the the reason I did that was because, you know, the the lay audience is they're not reading scientific journals. <laughs> and, you know, and so my academic articles will say a lot of these things, but learning to write in a different format so that more people are actually going to read it, um, I think was really um was really a, a great skill to learn. Um, unfortunately, I haven't done a ton more of it recently because I've been focusing more on the academic. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's really, that's the way to get your work actually out there for people to know what you're doing mm-hmm. um, or shedding light on really, you know, really bad issues like bad policies like the the housing one that I wrote. And um, they actually, I don't, I don't do Twitter. I'm not, you know, I don't even and they made me uh, make a, make a Twitter account so I could tweet that article at Ben Carson. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> so I literally have Twitter and have one one post. <laughs> and uh, but uh, yeah, but there's there's real importance to that and value to that. And I think it's um, as an academic, it's it's necessary to be able to reach uh, as broad an audience as you possible. I agree. I I actually had a similar conversation with uh, another um, researcher I interviewed with her work too, that um, how do you, how do you share this very important research work, like you said, with the rest of the public, because research journals typically are pretty gated, you know, Mm -hmm. like even to read one, typically you have to have a subscription to, you know, a library, you know, some kind of database. And so I, I think that's great. I hope more people can do that, but you're right. It's it's time and how you do it. So interesting. What are the gaps in the literature in regards to working with uh, vulnerable populations? I think there's not a lot of um, translation into action. And so, 
uh, a lot of people will do research and find, you know, things that are really important and then nothing really happens with them. Um, there isn't the next step. Um, there's the next grant that might be with a different population or, you know, and so I feel like there isn't just a trajectory from initially engaging with the population and then actually doing something that's going to be beneficial. And so I think those are some gaps and I'm not saying that's not done, but it's not as widely published. And so we just don't see that translation. And, you know, when you're living in the world of academia, it really is publish or perish and you have to get grants and you have to do, you know, this constant cycle. And so it's somewhat difficult to go on that trajectory, but that's really what's best for our, our populations that we work with. And so I think just really translating whatever your findings are to the next step and really doing that application. I think that's what's that's what's missing. And that's what I'm trying to, to do. Thank you. Uh, and my last question is, um, what one piece of advice would you give someone conducting research with vulnerable and under underserved populations? Not pitying your the group that you're working with or the community you're working with. Um, I I don't pity the women that I work with. I'm amazed by their strength and their empowerment. And I think really making sure that we come from a strengths-based approach and um, look at ways of empowerment and how they're already being empowered, I think is, is extremely important. Um, I always say when I, after giving a presentation, I don't want people to walk away feeling sad or feeling like I want them to be like, these women are absolutely amazing. Um, and if you don't mind, I'd love to just share a quote from one of the participants yeah. that I feel like sums up all of that. Yep, yeah, definitely. She said, oh, to be a black woman, not to be a statistic, not to just succumb to whatever they think you are because you are a black woman. The loud, obnoxious, got seven or eight different baby daddies on welfare. It's about strength. I feel like we're more empowered. I feel like I am the shit as a black woman because I've overcome a lot of stereotypes and statistics on both sides of being black and a woman. That's great. Thank you for sharing that. I feel like that sums up um, how we need to look at an approach working with any underserved populations. Excellent. Well, that is a, that's a great place to, to end the interview, I think. Uh, so thank you so much for uh, joining me today. Uh, it, was, it was very interesting. Great. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Thank you for joining us for Between the Data. If you enjoyed this podcast and want to hear more about InVivo podcasts and community events, please visit go.invivobyqsr.com slash community or email me, Stacy Penna, at s.penna, P-E-N-N-A, at qsrinternational.com. 